Welcome everyone to Season 1, Episode 6 of the On Path Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Kevin Chu. Kevin is a Product Integration Engineer at Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. He joined Bridgewater after graduating from Columbia University with a degree in Computer Science. There he served as the President of CORE, the Columbia Organization of Rising Entrepreneurs, which has 5,000 plus members and has sent ventures straight to Y Combinator. He's also the co-founder of Young, Gifted, and Non-Dominant, which aims to connect brilliant students of color with career-advancing opportunities. So what does this episode have to offer? Well, first off, you get to hear directly from someone on the inside the experience of working at Bridgewater. In Kevin's own words, culture is easily the most unique thing about Bridgewater. We also dig into what led to the founding of Young, Gifted, and Non-Dominant, specifically the information asymmetry between different groups of students. Most of all, what I think you'll enjoy in this episode is the thoughtfulness that Kevin puts into shaping his career. He's a brilliant individual and there are many nuggets of wisdom. So with that, let's get into it. Enjoy and thank you for listening. Good morning, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining. Vijay, good morning. It is good to be here with you today. Really thrilled to have you on the On Path podcast. We're going to talk about a range of topics, product management, Bridgewater, your time at Columbia, some of your extracurricular projects. But I want to start off with user interviews and usability testing. I know that when you were at Abra, the cryptocurrency startup, that you, along with a colleague, did over 100 hours of user interviews and usability tests. My question for you is, beyond what you learned about the product specifically uh, and the opportunity, what was your biggest personal takeaway from that 100 plus hours? I remember every one of those hours we spent talking with users. It was one of the best parts of that summer. I think one of the most important things for any product person to do is to talk with your users, know them as real people. And being able to meet some of our users who used our product, that really reinforces the contract that we have with our users as technologists. These people that we build and ship product for, they are not just abstract user IDs in Mixpanel. These are these are real people with their own needs and wants and pain points. I, I will never forget some of the users that we met and how just fascinating and three-dimensional people they were. I remember the elderly lady from the UK who told us about how she was a Bletchley Park codebreaker. And today she thinks crypto is just the coolest thing. And even though she's 82 years old, doesn't have the best eyesight, she used her app to get into the crypto world. I remember the uh, internet infrastructure engineer from Bern, Switzerland, who was just one of our biggest fans, and we loved talking with him and a bunch of the feedback that he provided us because he was such a deeply invested user, really helped us make sense of where we wanted to take the product. That must have been a lot of iterations. Can you think of something concrete that towards the end was a big process improvement as opposed to the start? Yeah, I think the process of it stays the same, but I think the insights that you generate from running user research are very, I think the best insights are the very surprising 
and unexpected ones. I think I, I remember as an American company, we're so used to the way payments and the uh, plumbing of uh, payments works in the United States. We were working on expanding our services to uh, Europe where they have a whole entire different payment scheme in the European Union. They have this thing called SEPA and that was a whole new uh, paradigm for us to get used to. And it's one thing to read up on Wikipedia, what SEPA is. It's a whole different thing to be able to talk of users and get to learn some of the important distinctions and nuances of actually being a user and interfacing with the SEPA schemes. Small but meaningful things like how Europeans really love their credit cards and how there's a huge culture of contactless that's been around in Europe for much longer than they've been around in the United States. Things like how in Europe they have things called sort codes that we don't have in the United States. Very small but meaningful differences that end up influencing the way that our product interfaces with these users and their context. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. So I'd, I'd like to come to where we are right now. We're in November 2020, and you work for a very well-known organization, Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world. And your specific role is you are a product engineer. And I'd love to hear how you would describe your role to somebody outside of Bridgewater and even outside finance and tech? Sure thing. I will start at the question of what is Bridgewater? What do we do in the first place? As you mentioned, Bridgewater is the world's largest hedge fund by assets under management. And put simply, we are in the business of helping institutional investors keep their promises. A lot of institutions such as pension funds, retirement funds, insurance, college endowments, and the like, these institutions, they have obligations to a bunch of people. For example, if I am a firefighter in Chicago, then I expect to be able to retire on a generous pension at a certain time in life. And what these institutions need to do is make good in these promises. And they come to Bridgewater to give us their money to manage so they can do that. If we do our job right, then public school teachers and firefighters, they can retire on time. The, the firm, you can't really understand Bridgewater without understanding our culture of radical truth and radical transparency. Now, what do these things mean in the first place? I think the really special thing about Bridgewater is that one, this is a place where everyone carries this very understated, extreme competence, professionalism, and reliability. And what makes this possible is our, you can call it the social contract to be honest and direct with each other, to prioritize truth and transparency in a way that gets above 
a lot of the usual petty disagreements and roadblocks that might come up in other places. The culture is easily the most unique thing about Bridgewater. And it has done a lot for me in my own personal growth and just expansion of my own self-awareness. I remember walking into Bridgewater and realizing just how much I didn't know about anything. And although this was painful to go through, it was such a gift to have an environment where people were willing to sit down with me, be direct and honest about my blind spots and help me deal with them in a good way. Now I'll go to where I fit in into Bridgewater. I work on the product team as a product integration engineer on the tech side of the business. And doing product in Bridgewater is quite unique. It's a very unique place to learn the ropes of doing product because unlike being at a place where your customers are millions if not billions of users across the world on say a social media app, our customers are a much smaller group of the most sophisticated economic minds in the world. And our responsibility is to build and shape the technology and platform that helps these people make sense of the global economic machine. The massively underrated thing about working on a problem like this is that it requires a very rigorous engineering culture, a respect for good engineering if you're dealing with problems and requirements of the sort that we do. And if you want to understand the global economy and how it works, there are so many fascinating questions about how you understand data and time series and the ever-shifting nature of the economy worldwide. You mentioned the culture, and I'd love to get into that a bit more because, as you said, that that's what makes Bridgewater such a unique organization from the outside and, of course, from the inside as well. I understand that kind of at an abstract level, but could you give me some concrete examples of how that is played out with radical transparency, radical honesty, either in terms of you getting feedback or you offering feedback? Yes, absolutely. I remember my first couple months at Bridgewater were painful. I remember going to a really rough time because for a variety of different reasons. One, I've never worked at a big company before and I didn't know what that was like. Two, I had a bunch of blind spots as a person myself that I've never been made aware of, that I never dug into to become aware of. And a lot of those blind spots, a lot of those weaknesses popped in really spectacular ways when I was just getting started. And the incredible thing about how my team and my managers and the community around me responded is that they didn't sugarcoat anything. They were generously direct about every bit of 
how I did things wrong and what things I was missing. And they didn't hesitate at all to hold up the funhouse mirror in my face and point out all those things. And that's great because now I'm in a place where I'm painfully aware of all my blind spots. I'm painfully aware of how things went wrong and why they did due to specific things about me as a person and how I thought about things. But that's a painful place to be because now you're painfully aware of where things are lacking, but you don't quite know what to do about it. And the what do you do about the part, that was where a lot of magic happened too, because I was able to acknowledge that I really didn't know anything. But there were some people around me, my team, people who have been to experiences like this, my manager, who could help guide me through this process of evolution. And that's what it really is, this evolutionary cycle, this evolutionary process in which your mistakes are things that you can celebrate instead of the test. Your mistakes are natural inflection points in the evolutionary cycle. And if you're able to stare at them and understand them in a direct and honest way, you can figure out what to do about them. And that's exactly what we did through coaching and through a bunch of looping on my own part. I was able to get myself into a place where I went from performing well below expectations to performing above. And that wouldn't have been possible. It wouldn't have happened as smoothly for sure without that radical truth and radical transparency that we all agree to throughout the whole entire process. I can't imagine doing this at a different company. I was super transparent about my struggles, my weaknesses, and my failings to the point where every couple of days, every week, I would send out my detailed reflections on my weaknesses and what I was doing to improve to my whole team. And they're gracious enough to follow along with me on that journey and bring me to where I need to be. I have two more questions on, on Bridgewater. And the first is actually one that was suggested on LinkedIn. Bridgewater is a very different kind of organization. I'd love to hear you talk about how that impacts products specifically being such a kind of cross-functional discipline. Product Bridgewater is a very unique place to learn product. And I'm very glad to be able to apprentice with really awesome product managers. You'll find two kinds of product managers at Bridgewater. You have the Bridgewater veterans who have been there for forever. These people started building Bridgewater's technology years ago. And when the time came for an organization to acquire former product management org, they became our first product managers. And on the other hand, as the organization scaled, we hired a bunch of really awesome product managers from other organizations such as Amazon and Stripe and such. So here's me, someone who doesn't know anything, who can sit at the feet of these very experienced and excellent product managers from both those categories and just soak up their wisdom. So that's the great developmental part of 
being in this organization, I think in addition to the sheer amount of personal growth that the culture enables, you're surrounded by very satisfyingly competent people, people who have done incredible things in their career, in their life, and bring that wealth of wisdom and expertise to Bridgewater. Unlike other orgs in which product is very consumer facing, you have millions of users to try and satisfy. Our user base, since they are our colleagues, our investors, our researchers, we're able to hypothetically call them all into the same room, or at least the same Zoom room, and candidly speak with them and discuss their needs, their pain points, and get in sync on what they want out of our products in the future. In my role, I do a lot of product operations and customer reliability the engineering. So almost every day on a daily basis, our team, we are interfacing with users. We're helping them solve their problems and having such rich domain knowledge and view of their pain points. We're able to take that back to the product org, to tech, and hold them accountable to making our platform better because we have that firsthand insight. And of course, our users, they are the most sophisticated economic minds in the world. And it's, it's a pleasure to be able to work with users who are just geniuses in their own right. People who have strong views and strong opinions and the logic to back them, which is a very different dynamic than the working with an anonymous user who submitted a three-star review on some review site about a consumer placing product. Yeah. So my final question about Bridgewater, it's this very unique environment with hyper-competent colleagues that's, of course, created by having a very high bar. Curious to hear, how was the hiring process like? And how did you land your position at Bridgewater? I remember the last couple of weeks of my senior year at Columbia, and I remember freaking out because I didn't quite know what I was going to do after graduation. And I had some offers in the hand, but I didn't know if that was what I really wanted to commit to. And then out of the blue, I remember getting this outreach from a sourcer who offered me the chance to interview with Bridgewater. And I remember freaking out because I had an exploding offer literally yeah, the day after. And I didn't know whether to commit to that and just stop worrying about what I was going to do after college or take a chance and see what would happen. And I am super glad that I took a leap of faith. I told that VC firm that I wanted some more time and I started the process of Bridgewater and it was an eye-opening experience because Bridgewater really cared about who I was as a person, what my values were. And I'll introduce what we call the values, abilities, skills framework, the VAS framework in principles. Ray talks about values and abilities and skills and how they are distinct ways of understanding a person. 
who is interviewing for a job. For example, a skill might be reversing a linked list in Java. An ability might be being good at software engineering, whereas a value might be a lifelong drive to learn driven by curiosity. And a lot of companies, they assess candidates mostly only on the basis of skills. You interview for a tech company and they ask you to implement a hash map and maybe they'll ask you some behavioral questions and such. But a lot of companies only scratch the surface by doing that. I remember in my conversations with Bridgewater, they really took the time to deeply understand and probe into my motivations, the whys of why I wanted to work at Bridgewater and what I was looking to gain from working at Bridgewater. So I really appreciated the thoughtfulness and the depth of the process compared to pretty much any other recruiting experience that I've ever had. Thank you for sharing that. At this point now, I'd like to rewind. Curious to hear, how did growing up in Southern California shape you into the person you are today? Yes, I will point to three places in my neighborhood that greatly shaped the person that I've become. The first place was the public library. I remember I was in fifth grade when the city announced that they were opening a new public library not too far away from where I lived. And that summer library opened, I got my first library card and just read and read. I immediately gravitated toward their aisle of classics, which was right next to the checkout counter. And start diving into classics by authors such as Jules Verne, Tolkien, Steinbeck. They remain my favorite authors to this day. And I just remember my understanding, my map of the world exploding that summer. As a kid who wasn't even in middle school, discovering a whole new wealth of knowledge universes of experiences and these these authors changed my life my love of classic science fiction my love of literature in general i i really owe it to that library and that summer because i continue to try and eat up as much literature and nonfiction as I can, because I think in an age where people want sound bites, where people want information elegantly and succinctly distilled in tweets, there is a there's a certain kind of magic to going deep, to really immersing yourself in an academic paper or in a long novel or research report that you don't really get from sound bites, that you don't get from short summaries online. The gift of attention and intentionality that literature allows you to enter in, I think it's become a way of life beyond just reading a book itself it really enforces this habit of bringing attention and intentionality 
to every second of your life. Quick follow-up question about what is your preferred medium of reading now? Are you more an ebook person or physical books? Mix of both? Physical books for life. I love the physicality of being able to flip a page, to dog ear a page, to place a bookmark in a book and flip back to it. I'm now I've, I've never tried e-readers. Maybe I should give that a try one day. But not, for me, speaking right now, nothing beats the physicality and the tactile experience of flipping through a paper book. I remember one of my high school English teachers, we had a great discussion about how marking up, annotating, writing marginalia, highlighting lines from a book, it it really makes the book your own. Sure, you can digitally highlight quotes on a Kindle, but there really is something to being tactile with a paper copy of a book and entering into physical dialogue with it. I love physical books as well. I occasionally read on an ebook reader just for convenience when traveling. But the books that I really value and treasure, I always have a physical copy of them. Absolutely. Yes, and that was the uh, public library. I'm also going to give a shout out to the uh, soccer field. I grew up playing soccer in a youth league. And I was never really an athletic person, but my parents made me sign up for a few seasons. And I think being drawn into the environment and getting my wings playing soccer. I, I literally played left or right wing most games. And I think the most valuable lesson I learned from that experience, even though I no longer play, is that the coach-player relationship is so important. And one of the most valuable lessons I learned from my coaches was that it is a gift for them to be hard on you is a gift for them to not treat you any differently, to know that you don't deserve any special treatment more than anyone else. And by virtue of being so hard on you, that's their way of telling you that they care. Because the moment a coach or even the moment a customer or a colleague gives up on you and starts to let things slide, then they've given up on you. They don't care anymore. And that's a huge loss for you as a person and your team. Because if you give up on raising the bar, it's only going to fall. And finally, I finally look back to my first job, my first job ever working with the city's community and parks department. I was a little too young to watch Parks and Rec, but I think of myself as Leslie Nope in many ways. And my time working in the parks department really shaped the way that I saw cities and the community. Parks make life better. That was California's slogan for public parks, and I continue to very firmly believe that today in the importance of the commons, of having 
spaces where the public can intermingle with each other. And living in New York when I became a college student and after really reinforce the magic of having so many different people, complete strangers, share the same public space and the sheer spontaneity that allowed being able to, to run a soccer tournament or a frisbee league in the park or catching Shakespeare in the park. Those are incredible experiences that we shouldn't take for granted just because they're public. Absolutely. This ties nicely into the next topic of some of the communities you've been a part of and your extracurriculars. I know you founded an organization called Young, Gifted, and Non-Dominant. Could you introduce the organization to us, sharing with us what the purpose is? That's right. Young, Gifted, and Non-Dominant is an initiative that I helped get started in college. I'm no longer involved with it, but they continue to do great stuff. One of the things that I and my co-founder, Akua Kwe, noticed when we were in college is that there is this huge information asymmetry between different groups of students. A lot of students, they enter college and they don't know the first thing about how to network or how to get an internship. And career centers address this needs to some extent, but there is still this big gap. A lot of more privileged students, they their parents were partners at a consulting firm or an investment bank. So they naturally know how to get those jobs. Whereas a lot of our students just don't have that home court advantage. A lot of students that we talked to mentioned the value of having upperclassmen friends who have been to this process before, been through the recruitment cycles and how talking with them was helpful. But a lot of those conversations happen in closed off exclusive spaces like pre-professional clubs. So that got us thinking about how valuable it would be to amalgamate all these different threads of knowledge and resources and career advancing opportunities into one easily accessible place. So people, regardless of where they were starting from, could have access to the lay of the land and discover opportunities that would help them get the next internship, the next job, and such. So the way we literally started is that we just made a huge list. We sent out a huge form asking upperclassmen what resources helped the most in their careers, what internship programs, diversity programs, fellowships, and the like they would recommend underclassmen check out. And we just put all of that into a neatly organized, color-coded air table. And that was our V1 of Young, Gifted, and Non-Dominant. Eventually, we expanded this to a print and digital booklet that we distributed across career centers along the eastern seaboard. And finally, in its current form, Aku did the hard work of setting up a website and organization where they continue to spread these resources and build a community of young, gifted, and students of color who are in search of career advancing opportunities. I can see how that makes such a big difference. I, I know I got so much career advice from my brother. That was, uh, we just happened to have a brother who was 
in a similar industry and was a couple of years ahead and was able to offer me very useful advice, but a resource like that, I imagine is hugely useful. Absolutely. That information, it needs to be democratized. Yeah. And I love the iterations you went through, starting with an air table onto printed brochures and a website and it sounds like various channels as well, directly through career centers and then through students. I want to talk about another organization right now, which I know you were a very active member of. You were actually the president of CORE at Columbia. So two questions, what drew you to CORE and how did you become president? That's right. CORE is the Columbia organization of rising entrepreneurs, the student organization for entrepreneurship at Columbia for undergraduates. CORE was by far the pride and joy of my Columbia experience. My time at Columbia would not have been the same without that organization. And I look back with the utmost gratitude for the time I was able to serve for CORE. CORE is in many ways an anti-pre-professional club. There were a bunch of other pre-professional organizations professional fraternities and the like, and they had their own way of doing things, which was oftentimes very exclusive, very uh, industry-focused. But you can't limit entrepreneurship to a certain industry or a certain group of people. In many ways, we wanted to inspire and educate and launch the next generation of Columbia entrepreneurs from where we were at. Meeting people where they are at was really important for us because there are a lot of people who come to college and they don't even know that entrepreneurship is an option. They enter freshman orientation and they meet some upperclassmen and they have discussions with the classmates and sooner or later they pick up names and terms like investment banking, consulting, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs. Sooner or later they're socialized to learn that Consulting, I have no idea what that is, but I just know that McKinsey is the best, so I'll aim for that. And that becomes their default mode of socialization in what they want to do with their lives. And what we wanted to offer is an opportunity to really interrogate that, to explore how in more how a more entrepreneurial lens could help them figure out what they wanted to do with their lives, how that could fit into their worldview. So it was an immense pleasure to work with some of the best people at Columbia to not only run events and speaker panels to expose students to entrepreneurship, but also practice entrepreneurship and evangelize it. With the wealth of resources the university offered to us, we were able to dare to do things that no other student organization, not Columbia, not other undergraduate schools, would ever think to do. I'm so proud of the work that we were able to do to set up our own student-run Starb Accelerator that's sent companies founded by students straight to Y Combinator. I'm really proud of the work that we did to send groups of students on very fulfilling spring break trips across the world to explore what entrepreneurship like is like in other cities such as Beijing, such as Shanghai, or Berlin, or Paris, for example. And I think too, when we set up our own 
startup internship program in collaboration with the Career Center to expose students to what it's like to work at a startup. And I just remember one of the greatest outcomes was that was a student who was quite set on taking his Goldman Sachs return offer, but then decided to give a start internship a try. I think he was matched with a very obscure startup named Uber, and they were scaling up their operations in New York. And once he got in the door, he was absolutely hooked and he couldn't go back to the world of finance. And I think to, at least as a couple of years ago to this day, he remained a key member of their operations team in the city. So being able to expose students to entrepreneurship and let them know that this is an option was a very fulfilling thing because a lot of these things enrich their college experiences. It showed them a path that might have been more aligned with what they wanted out of life. Sounds like it really shook up some plans for certain students who might have just got set into a track and just showed them a whole world of possibilities. Absolutely. And I know it did that for me as well. I entered college. I had declared tentatively on my application that I wanted to study English and neuroscience. The tragic thing about that was that I just couldn't get into any English classes when it came time for registration. And when I took organic chemistry, that was the end of my neuroscience hopes. And I just remember around the same time, I was desperately trying to memorize organic chemistry structures. I went on this Thanksgiving break trip with some other folks and upperclassmen in the core at the time. We spent the week in San Francisco in the Bay Area just visiting and exploring companies, startups, venture capital firms. And this exposed me, like CORE has done for many other people, to a whole new ecosystem, a whole new way of life, of tech and entrepreneurship. And I remember being so inspired by the things that I heard and learned on that trip. I resolved to be a part of the world. I switched my major to computer science, which I thought at the time was the best proxy to get into the world. And it was history from there. I don't know what my life would have looked like otherwise without CORE. Typically, I like to ask guests to look back at certain important points in their life, decisive moments. But I want to kind of flip that around a bit for you and ask you to look forward What are going to be some really important factors for you as you make future career decisions? The way that I look, I guess, both back and forward on my life, I like to think of it in terms of tours of duty is the phrase that I use. There are certain periods in your life, certain seasons of life that are defined by a certain theme or a commitment or a time of service to something. And I think the key operative part of that is being in service to something that is bigger and greater than you are. For example, at Columbia Core was one of those things. And right now, learning to become the best product person that I can at Bridgewater is that thing for me right now. And looking forward, I'll leave it open-ended. I think my next tour of duty wherever that may be, is wherever I feel myself called. 
in one respect, you can make all the expected value calculations that you can about whether a potential career move or going to grad school is going to give you the best ROI. But I think ultimately the best decider and the ultimate decider is going to be my intuition and what deeper sense of duty and service that gets called in me. And I don't know what that is right now, but I'm excited to find out. So I came across this beautiful quote that you wrote. The most interesting things happen at the margins. Seek out the countercultural, live out your counter-narrative, and dare to imagine better. Could you elaborate on that? Absolutely. I, I remember this interview with Blog, Columbia's student-run blog, in their Senior Wisdom column. And I'm so glad you brought this up because this brings back the headspace I was in when I did this interview. As a soon-to-graduate senior at Columbia, not quite sure what I was going to do, but carrying immense gratitude to the unexpected and surprising experiences that I was able to enjoy and experience at Columbia. And I think this all goes back to this sense of radical open-mindedness that this this deep sense of curiosity that's always driven me and where I have went. One of the most interesting things happen at the margins. What I'm saying is that it's too easy to fall into this default mode where you allow the limits of your experience, of your understanding to be defined for you. It's too easy to let your default context draw the boundaries for you, for what you want to learn, for the people you want to meet, the experiences you want to live out. And I think it requires an active practice uh, pushing against that, an active practice of curiosity that leads you to the margins. I think I first picked this habit up when I was in middle and high school. I was, I was a yearbook kid, and one of the greatest pleasures of being a student journalist was that I got a free hall pass to go anywhere, pull out anyone from any class whenever I liked, just because I wanted to talk to them. And I greatly abused that privilege many, many times, both for official yearbook work and for otherwise. And that's how I became someone who wasn't defined by any single friend group. But as someone who could go and have a conversation with anyone at the school, even if they were in a completely different place or different subculture than I was. The same thing at Columbia happened for me because I didn't limit myself to the computer science people. I didn't limit myself to even the entrepreneurship people. I got really lucky in being able to find rich and fulfilling communities of people in other spheres of the campus as well, in the Asian American community, in the Christian and spiritual community, and beyond that too, people who didn't quite fall cleanly into those buckets either. This all came from this desire to really understand what made people tick, to understand what drove their narratives, what their worldviews were. And I was never going to be able to do that if I just stayed within my own comfort zone. Richard Feynman talks about 
the pleasure of figuring things out for yourself. And one of the best ways to do that is to first acknowledge that my own worldview as it is was just so limited. There was so much that I just didn't know or understand that other people were so different from me. And for that to inspire a sense of awe and curiosity rather than dread or fear. When we first met almost three years ago, you struck me as a very curious person and you Thank continue you. to strike me as a very open-minded person, eager to learn more about other people, but eager to learn more about yourself as well. Mm -hmm. I'd like to end with a kind of no constraints question. What would your perfect day look like? That gets me thinking too, the day where we first met. I think this was maybe uh, two years ago or so in the before COVID times. I remember when we got brunch at Community and I, I remember the taste and the texture of that hollow French toast and the syrup that the waitstaff poured over it. I remember eating outside on the street and it was a crowded street too. People just walking by, bustling and living their lives. I remember after our conversation, walking a few blocks over to Book Culture, my one of my favorite bookstores, and just being able to spend a good hour walking around, browsing the titles, spending some time with some that stood out to me, and just being able to spend time in public, surrounded by other people in an actual place. Whatever happened to places? The New Yorker writer Rachel Stein, she writes a lot about the New York experience and the centrality of walking around the city and really taking it in. The experience of starting on the west side and taking a stroll to central park and ending up by the united nations building getting a plate of jollof rice at the nigerian food truck right outside with no particular aim or purpose other than to just experience a city take in the ambience and a bustle i eagerly anticipate a day when we can do that again Kevin, I'm really glad you got into computer science, but I think English would have been a wonderful path to <laughs> You were very eloquent in your speech. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Peter. What would be the best way for people to reach you in case they're interested in connecting? Yes, yeah, so I am best reached at, I have a Twitter account at I'm Kevin Chu, and also my LinkedIn would be the best way to reach me. I'm also fairly responsive on email, and that should be listed on my LinkedIn. Great. Is there anything you'd like to specifically call out or point people towards? Not right now. My only wish for listeners of this podcast is to infuse some attention into your day. Notice the rising and the rhythms of your breath. Listen to the sound of birds outside over your window and learn the name of those birds and learn the names of the fauna and the flora that you pass by every day when you take a walk to the park and 
let that attention to life fill you with gratitude. Kevin, I'm so happy we did this. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise. Thank you, Vijay. This has been a pleasure. That brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Kevin. I like the takeaway he left us with. Infuse some attention into your day. As always, thank you for listening.